Today's really a special day. Uh, it's a special day in that we're celebrating Palm Sunday, uh, which is really the kickoff for Holy Week, where Christians all over the world remember and reflect on the death of Jesus and also look forward to the celebration on Easter Sunday of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is a special week uh, where we are thinking about the Lord. Uh, it's also a special day in that we are going to take the Lord's Supper today. So if you didn't get one of those elements uh, coming in, we will hand those out to you. But hopefully most of you got those elements uh, as you came in the door today. And uh, we are wrapping up our series, Jesus, I've Got a Question. We're wrapping up with one final question today. And that final question is this, Jesus, why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? And we find the answer to that in John's Gospel, chapter 18. So if you've got your Bible, uh, open up with me, John chapter 18. If you didn't bring one, we've got one at your seat uh, for you to have. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to have that. Uh, John chapter 18. If you watch the adventure movie uh, Endgame, then you know that all the other adventure movies kind of are leading up to that big final conflict, that big final battle. And of course, you can understand the battle, but you can really understand it if you know all the backstories. Well, that's really like the Bible. All the Bible are a collection of stories, but they're all leading to one final conflict, which is Christ and the cross, right? So the patriarchs, the, 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 um, the conquest, the prophets, the Psalms, all this is driving us somewhere, and they're driving us to this ultimate conflict of Jesus on the cross, and that's where we're going to be uh, today. We're going to look at one of the darkest nights, one of the most difficult nights, and that is the night of Jesus' arrest. So look with me now, John chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kindron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now stop right there for just a minute. I want you to underline the word Kidron Valley. It's an important place. Uh, almost every time that I take a trip to the Holy Land, I will ask if a group wants to go with me, and we will start at night, and we'll start at the upper room, and we will make our way following the steps of Jesus down through the city and across the Kindron Valley and up to the other side, the Mount of Olives. Now, doing it today looks different than how it was in Jesus' day. And what I mean by that is that Josephus, the his Jewish historian, told us, uh, reflecting on a Passover that took place 30 years after the death of Jesus, that, that during that time they took a census of how many lambs were slain during the Passover. And what they discovered is that, that they, they accounted for 256,500 lambs that were killed on that one Passover an unthinkable amount of lambs that were sacrificed. Now, if you think about that, the blood of those lambs were collected at the temple and then it flowed down at a channel that would ultimately pour out into the river in the bottom of the Kindron Valley. And so it's, 
It's not improbable that when Jesus was making his trek down and stepping over that water in the Kindred Valley stained with blood, that it was a foreshadowing of his death as the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Where were they headed? They were headed to a garden. You know, there are three gardens mentioned in the Bible. There is uh, the Garden of Eden that's mentioned in the Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that talks about where God created man and where he walked with mankind in the, in the cool of the day and had fellowship with him. When sin came into the world, that, that fellowship was broken. That's the Garden of Eden. There's another garden in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, and we know that to be heaven. Uh, in fact, we studied heaven last week, and we learned that one of the names for heaven is paradise, which means a king's garden. And so we know of heaven as a wonderful garden, but between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Heaven, there stands a third garden, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane, the garden where Christ spent those last few moments in prayer. Why did Jesus go to that particular garden? Well, I think it was a familiar place. We're told in Luke 21 that Jesus spent his last week primarily teaching at the temple uh, court area, and then he would sleep at night on the Mount of Olives. It's quite possible he would have spent the night in this very place. It was probably a, a a private garden that he had access to, and it was a place where he could get away from the crowds, where he could get away from the pressure, that he could be alone, and he could pray, and he could be with his friends and be at peace. But I think there's an even more important reason why Jesus went to this garden on this night, and we find it in verse 2. What we read is that Judas knew the place. John wants us to understand as he's writing this gospel and he's talking about the death of Jesus, he, he wants us to understand that Jesus was not a victim, that Jesus just didn't happen, he caught off guard and all these people captured him and he was unaware that this was happening. No, no, no. He, he wants you to understand, he wants me to understand that Jesus was not a victim, that Jesus knew exactly what was happening, that Jesus was even in charge of it and Jesus went to the place that he knew, Judas knew he would be. He went to that place because Judas knew the place and Judas knew where Jesus could be found. Look at verse 3. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. All this happened in the dark, by the way. All of it happened. It happened in the physical darkness. It was night, but it also happened in spiritual darkness. We know by this point that Judas was already possessed by Satan. In John chapter 13, it says, when he ate the bread, that Satan entered into him. So everything that happens from this point is satanic and demonic in nature. And here is Judas, and he is forming what we would call an unholy alliance, a godless alliance, a demonic alliance. Well, who is with him? Well, look at it. Uh, there, there's a company of soldiers there. Some translation, your translation might say cohort. Um, the Greek word there is a reference to Roman a company of soldiers numbering as many as 600 soldiers. These soldiers were most likely 
station in Caesarea Maritima up on the coast. That's where Herod had his palace so he could look out over the Mediterranean Ocean. But when uh, the Passover happened, then Pilate came in and Herod would come in and there the Roman uh, guards would come and be stationed in Jerusalem. So he has with him a company of Roman soldiers. He also has officials of the chief priests who are most likely temple guards that were there to protect the religious leaders. And then he has the Pharisees named themselves. The Pharisees were there. And, and these are really strange business partners, right? These people didn't normally get along with each other. They're strange bedfellows. I mean, the, the Pharisees hated the Romans for their oppression uh, of the Jewish people. But, but here is Judas, and he's orchestrating this ungodly alliance all against Jesus. And of course, we know that this was to fulfill prophecy. If you look in Psalm chapter 2, Verse 3, it says, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. It was a devilish alliance, an unholy alliance. And they came against Jesus with all that they had. John says they came with clubs and torches. Matthew 26, verse 47 says, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs came against Jesus. And you might say, well, why? Why so many people, right? They're just after one guy. Why so many people? Why so much, uh, um, why armed to the teeth like this? And I I think there are a couple of reasons. One is, you know, they, they knew Jesus was powerful. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's pretty powerful, don't you think? So he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, so they weren't really sure what to expect. But they also knew Jesus' popularity. They know that he had just a week earlier had rode into town on the back of a donkey and everyone was after him. Everyone was pursuing him and praising him. And we know that that they were very concerned about the popularity of Jesus and that they, they should not or could not apprehend him when his followers might defend him. So they brought all these guards armed to the teeth so that they could handle whatever they faced, as if they could handle the Son of God. Look at verse four. It says, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Now, there are three different times where Jesus predicted his death clearly. Three different occasions Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer the hands of the chief priests and teachers of the law. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again on the third day. Three different times over the last nine months that Jesus predicted this was going to happen. And so John makes it really clear here that Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. This was no accident. He wasn't caught in the gears of some kind of political machine. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. And he knew exactly what he was doing. There are many times when Jesus evaded uh, the, the guards. There are many times they tried to ga- gather him. They tried to catch him. And he would just escape because it wasn't his time. But now he's not evading. 
He's stepping forward. In fact, I want you to notice what it says here. He went out. That's in verse one. That's also in verse four. He went out. Jesus is taking the initiative. Jesus is making contact. He is stepping forward. He is now the good shepherd who's about to lay down his life for his sheep. He says, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And they collapsed back. Now, here's, here's what I want you to see. This is a picture of the end times. This is a picture of what will happen one day. That Jesus will speak and just the words of his mouth will defeat his enemies. Philippians 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah says that, that out of his mouth will come a rod that he will smite the earth. In Revelation 19, he says he comes again in power and a sword comes out of his mouth. What is that? That's kind of a weird look. What it means is that the power comes with his word. Listen, Jesus doesn't have to do anything to defeat evil. He just has to say the word. I mean, he can defeat evil with his feet up, people, all right? It's not a deal for him. He says a word and they fall back. And that is just a picture of what will happen when Christ returns to us. But look at what he's doing. He's protecting. He's protecting. Look at verse 7. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, let's stop here for just a minute. You know, here's Jesus. He's protecting his disciples, right? I mean, he's got guys, uh, get them behind him, just like a dad that would like step forward and put his kids and his wife behind him. He's protecting, right? He's a shepherd that's protecting the sheep. And he's, he's like, in his actions, he's saying, I got this. Uh, and, and, and Peter, you know, he like reaches for his sword and he starts wailing it uh, around. And it's Peter by his actions saying, no, Jesus, I got this. <laughs> I got this. It's obvious that Peter was a fisherman and not a swordsman, right? Because he's just flailing around and he ends up cutting off this poor guy's ear, Malchus. You, you don't want to get your name in the Bible because you get your ear cut off. That's just a sad, sad deal. And, and poor guy, he's a servant. He, he probably had to be there, doesn't want to be there. And this crazy fisherman starts swinging his sword. And, and, and by the way, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus bent down and healed Malchus's ear, which was the last healing that Jesus would do. But how many times do we tell Jesus, I got this? I, I'm going to have this conversation. I'm going to pull some strings. I'm going to make some deals. I, I, can, I can make this happen when, when you may be like Peter, just getting in the way of what God is doing. Peter was just getting in the way. And then we come to verse 11. Now, verse 11 is where all this is leading. If, if this was a movie, uh, the camera would pan in on verse 11. 
If this was on the stage, the lights would focus in on verse 11. This is where we're headed, and this is where we find the answer to the question that we've been asking, Jesus, why did you have to die? So I want you to look at it with me. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, I want you to circle the word cup there. It's very important. So what is this cup that Jesus was referring to? Am I not to drink the cup the Father was giving? What is this cup? Now, listen to me. The cup that Jesus was referring to is the cup of God's wrath. It is a cup of God's wrath. In Christ Alone is probably one of our favorite modern hymns. For over 20 years, we've been singing that song. And yet, um, there is a line in that song that disturbs some people. Uh, One of the lyrics says this, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And there are some groups that don't like that lyric. In fact, there's one entire denomination that refused to put the song in their hymnal simply because it mentioned the wrath of God. There are other hymnals that have sought to amend the song and replace that phrase with a different phrase. Uh, Until on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. That's their recommendation. And of course, this has sparked a, a theological and legal debate over this changing of the slur. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why, why is there such a big issue? And the big issue is simply this. We live in a culture that wants to erase the wrath of God. We live in a culture that wants to select all, delete any mention of the wrath of God. We live in a culture that wants a God that will appease, a God that will affirm a God that will accept regardless of our behavior or what we have done against him. But here's what I need you to understand. You cannot fully appreciate the grace of God until you appreciate the wrath of God. The wrath of God is just as much an attribute of God as his love and of his grace and of his mercy. And so we can't just eliminate or delete The wrath of God. Well, you may say, well, uh, what exactly is the wrath of God? Uh, We don't hear about it that much, so I'm glad you asked. Let me just give you a simple little definition. Uh, The wrath of God is God's hatred and punishment of sin. His hatred and punishment of sin. Think about it this way. The Bible tells us that God is holy, that he cannot tolerate sin. The Bible also tells us that God is just and that he will always punish sin. Those who do wrong. He is absolutely just. Just like we want our judges to to judge justly. God is the ultimate judge. And so the wrath of God is when the holiness of God and the justice of God are expressed together in God's divine judgment. That is the wrath of God. Wrath of God is all the way through the Bible. It's probably not gonna surprise many of you that the wrath of God appears multiple times in the Old Testament, right? 
I mean, if I were to sit up here and give you all the verses on the wrath of God in the Old Testament, you'd have to have brought a lunch today uh, because we're going to go into extra innings. Well, let me give you just a few of them just for your reference to get a little taste of it. Jer- Jeremiah 29, 25, 15 says, Let's take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Asaph, the psalm writer in Psalm 75 verse 8 says this, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. So the cup of wrath is God's judgment against those who do evil. And by the way, if you want a deeper dive into this, I've included in my sermon notes on our app links that will help expand this even further than I can in my short amount of time. Now, some of you may say, well, Craig, um, that's Old Testament. Everybody knows that, all right? Everybody knows God's really mad in the Old Testament, but he, he lightens up in the New Testament right? Uh, can somebody say wrong? Yeah, no, no, no. We're not talking about two different gods here. In fact, did you know the wrath of God is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament? In uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, listen to these words. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God is being uh, coming down against those who are godless and wicked and who suppress the truth of the gospel. You say, well, that's really bad. Well, it gets even worse. Romans 2 verse 5, he says those who refuse to repent, those who refuse to turn to him and soften their heart, to those people they are, he said, quote, storing up wrath for the final day. Can you imagine just your, your wrath account is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and larger and larger and larger for that final day when it will be unleashed like the dam breaking on you, the wrath of God. You say, well, wait a minute, Craig, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we love Jesus and Jesus doesn't talk about the wrath of God. And I would say, you know what? You're wrong. Jesus mentions divine judgment multiple times, warning multiple times. In fact, it, get this, uh, John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And we love that part. Keep reading. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is there, that we are objects of wrath, Ephesians tells us, because we have sinned against God, we've rebelled against God, the wrath of God is on us, and it is only abated by Christ and his work. I can't even get to mention Revelation without talking about the wrath of God, right? You can't even stick your finger anywhere in Revelation without bumping into the wrath of God. And that is why Hebrews 10, 13 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The cup of God's wrath is God's judgment that he brings on those who rebel against him, those who sin against him, and those who reject him. And folks, that's all of us. 
Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many have fallen short of the glory of God? Tell me. All. For we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. All have turned around. Every one of us have gone our own way. How, how many are righteous? Well, Romans 3 says, not one person is righteous. Now, if you're getting a little nervous and awkward and squirming in your seat, then you're probably beginning to understand what I'm saying. The wrath of God is a real thing. I don't care if it's not popular. God doesn't care if it's not popular. It is over and over and over in the scripture we are warned against the coming wrath of God. And yet, here we have in verse 11, Jesus is drinking the cup. Well, why is Jesus drinking this cup of God's wrath? Jesus hasn't committed a sin. Jesus hasn't rebelled against God. Jesus isn't totally depraved like we are. Why is he doing that? In fact, in, in Matthew 26, he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Why is Jesus drinking the cup? Listen, he's doing it for you. That on the cross, the suffering of Jesus was not just his physical suffering at the hands of Roman torture, but his suffering was that he was, he was drinking the cup of God's wrath that you should be drinking and I should be drinking. He was on that cross our substitute. He was on that cross our payment. He was on that cross our Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Why did Jesus have to die? Here's the answer. Jesus died to save you from the wrath of God. You know, we like the term saved, don't we? Now, I grew up Baptist my whole life. I was Baptist nine months before I was born. And uh, we like the word saved. We would sing hymns about being saved. Saved by his power divine, saved uh, to, uh, I've, I've, I just forgot it. Life sublime, life now is sweet. And my, sing it with me, joy is complete for I'm what? Saved, saved. Safe. Now, if you're really into it, you would, at that point, thrust your feet, your fists up, not your feet, your fists <laughs> up in the air, and you would pump the air like this when you say, save, save, save. We love to talk about being saved. But here's the question. Save from what? Save from just a bad life? Save from hard times? No. You're saved from the wrath of God. That's why we use the term salvation, rescue, snatched from the wrath of God. You know, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who reject the gospel, reject what Christ has done, and they will face the wrath of God for their sin. What a terrifying thought. And then there are those who have accepted Christ, received the gospel, and they will have escaped the wrath of God, 
and find in its place God's mercy and God's kindness and God's grace. Which one are you? I want you to understand that on the cross, both God's wrath and God's love collide. Both God's justice and wrath against sin is poured out, and yet God's love and God's mercy is poured out because his wrath was on Jesus and not on you. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, we read this. This is love. This is love, he says. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. It's almost as if Jesus is holding back even now the wrath of God with one arm and extending grace with the other. But there will come a day when both arms will drop. So now is a season of grace. Now is a season of God's patience. Peter tells us that God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he is patient with you, patient with me, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to faith in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is a season of God's grace and God's mercy. And this is why Jesus had to die. He had to pay the penalty. My friends, don't wait. Don't wait. We had fires in West Texas over the last couple of weeks. Terrible to see how that fire would just devour acres and acres of lambs, homes, property, animals. Almost unrelenting unabating fire. The only place that is safe in a fire is where the fire has already been. On the cross, the fire of God's wrath fell on Jesus. And my friends, the place of safety and rescue is at the cross. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Have you come to a place of asking Christ, crying out to God for forgiveness of your sin? Do you know for sure that you've given your life to Christ? Is there a moment in time when you can say, you know, Craig, I, I know I gave my life to Christ at this point. Jesus has come into my life. He's changed my life. And my friends, if you are unsure, then I beg you, come to Christ today. Why would you wait any longer? Why would you resist the love of God that sent his own son to drink the cup of God's wrath for you? I'm going to say a simple prayer of faith. It's not a magical word, so just kind of a guide to lead you to cry out to the Lord Jesus and if you're here today and you say pastor I'm, I'm unsure but I want to be sure I don't know for sure but I want to know for sure 
And I want you right now, heads bowed, just lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. And I will just include you and walk you through a simple prayer of faith. Right now, if the Spirit of God is convicting you, right now, if the Spirit of God is wooing you, right now, if you feel conviction of your sin and your need for Christ, then that's God drawing you to Him. So lift up your hand right now. Quickly, quickly, lift it up, all right? All right? Anybody else? Lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I'm unsure. Pastor, I need the gospel. I need Christ. All right, thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Lift it up high where I can, all right, thank you. All right, thank you, I see your hand. Thank you. Maybe you're watching online. God is moving in your heart right now. This is your moment to receive Christ. All right, put your hand down. If you lift up your hand, then just pray this simple prayer with me. Dear Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I confess that I have sinned against you and I deserve judgment. But I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again for me. And so I'm crying out to you now. Based on the death and resurrection of Christ, please forgive me of my sin. Please wash me clean. I turn to follow you and I choose to follow you all the days of my life thank you for your love for me 